Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. As we struggle on through lockdown, I thought a mini-sode to finish off our train series would be in order as a pleasant distraction. We will probably revisit some of the mega rail projects one day, especially as we travel through Australia and India. But for now, it is time to move on to other things. But before we get started today, I'd like to read some listener reviews and also say a big welcome and thank you to newest patron, Jeremy Hoffman, who has become a respectable governess. Your support means a lot in these difficult times. I had a review from Laura Laurel in the USA, five star, quote, thank you for your research, dedication and enthusiasm, end quote. Well, thank you. It's much appreciated. We are nearly three years into this podcast and I'm glad to say my enthusiasm remains undimmed. The next review is a long one, but absolutely fantastic. From Travis B. Quote, A long-time fan of history podcasts. I was looking for something to listen to after burning through all of Mike Duncan's revolutions. I came across a podcast recommendation for the AOV series on Waterloo in a post on the Hardcore History discussion page on Facebook. I'm around 20 episodes in and the series has been delightful. The Age of Victoria podcast is a long-form history with equal attention given to major figures, trends and forces and the experience of the everyday folk. Christopher Fernandez Packham provides, for my tastes, just the right amounts of causes and consequences, storytelling, philosophy and ephemera. Perhaps Chris's greatest strength is his ability to empathise with the variety of characters that inhabit his stories. Famous, infamous or largely forgotten, Chris does his damnedest, understand the world of the past from the points of view of the people who lived it, even as he provides the meticulously researched judgments of history. By episode 20, I've even come to appreciate his laissez-faire approach to editing, which has improved somewhat from the beginning. He seems perfectly comfortable, including his second take of a line, along with the first, as if inviting us to empathise with him as a fallible human host. Still, if he ever wanted editorial help, I would be happy to oblige. Audacity is free after all. If you appreciate the exhaustive research and broad zooming lens of Dan Carlin, AOV provides all that with a greater focus on philosophy, education and sociology and less on the extremes of the human experience, as Dan might call it. Worth a listen. End quote. Again, I'm delighted when this show brings listeners such joy. I've always enjoyed history and philosophy, so being able to mix the two in a format that allows me to explore them is a pleasure, 
and I'm happy to share it with all of you. Foibungs and all. Also, in case any of you ask, my favourite hardcore history episode was Prophets of Doom, because it deals with a genuinely difficult human experience and the philosophy behind the horror. Today's show will be a light-hearted finish, though, to the series on trains, before we push onwards. But issues we're going to talk about are actually pretty important, and I think really fascinating. The trains created a new issue to deal with, one that was especially tricky for the privacy-focused Victorians. Railway travel caused a mingling of the social classes, throwing strangers together. That wasn't a minor thing for the Victorians. It was a huge thing for members of certain classes to speak to people they didn't know. But being stuck inside a railway carriage for someone for hours without speaking would perhaps have seemed uncomfortable. I haven't mentioned it much, but even speaking to someone of certain classes wasn't enough to be deemed to have been introduced or become an acquaintance. There's an old source I remember reading that I wish I could lay my hands on about a Victorian gentleman who was travelling through the desert to catch his onward ship. He was riding a camel and enjoying his solitude. Then, to his horror, he saw another man, also recognisably British, travelling towards him. He was quite upset at the potential interruption to his privacy, and was relieved when the other gentleman appeared to be changing direction. But the relief again turned to horror when it became clear that the camels were not fully under control and were dead set on saying hello. Fortunately, the gentleman related, the other man was equally upset at the thought of having to speak to someone And so, when the camels passed each other, they just politely doffed their hats to each other and said a polite good morning, and then passed on through the desert, their privacy undisturbed. But for the Victorians, this kind of thing, amusing as it sounds to us, was serious for them. Victorians were judged by their acquaintances. Such people were not close friends. But they were more than strangers, or people to whom a Victorian spoke sometimes. They were people who had been formally introduced, according to the etiquette of the day. Acquaintances widen the circle of people who could introduce you to other valuable acquaintances. It was a highly fraught business, with strict rules of etiquette that were often unclear. Naturally, a gentleman would not be an acquaintance of a blacksmith or shopkeeper, no matter how often he visited their premises or bought things from them. But there were a huge array of other situations where one could make an acquaintance, and the rules often left people very uncertain, leading to an absolute library's worth of books being written on etiquette. But with trains, suddenly people who might have politely nodded in the street might find themselves thrown together. Surely it would have been rude not to have spoken to the gentleman 
who led the hunt in a nearby town, but to whom the dashing captain hadn't been introduced. Yet a conversation for hours might have been taken to be sufficient for one of them to claim acquaintance with the other, and that might not be welcomed by either. You might laugh, but whole etiquette manuals were written about train travel. They covered everything, from the difficulties of being late for the train, to the inadvisability of putting names and destination labels on young children and sending them on the train to London alone, to the importance of collapsible hats for gentlemen to prevent them from damaging their top hats in the carriage. I've come across one manual from 1862 which has humour so dry you could use it to light a fire. The advice for choosing a carriage is, quote, Some persons, attracted by the lowness of the fare, have an inclination to ride by third class. They may be destined to pass the next few hours of their existence, tightly compressed between two rough specimens of humanity. When you are going on a long journey, scan the features of the person already in possession of the carriage, with a view of ascertaining whether they are likely to prove pleasant travelling companions or the contrary. End quote. As I've mentioned before, the Victorians were happy to be judgmental and snobbish. They considered these as virtues, provided the circumstances were appropriate. Quote, With regard to conversation, the English are notoriously deficient in this art. Generally speaking, the occupants of a railway carriage perform the whole of the journey in silence. End quote. That solves the problem of not being introduced, I suppose. Then there was, of course, the practical challenge of arriving alive. Again, the manual warns this was not a given, but that, quote, the proper place for the head is inside, not outside the carriage. And so long as it is kept there, the chances are that it will remain whole. End quote. You could add into that accidents and being robbed, especially in tunnels. Then there were the practicalities of how to urinate and defecate. Chamber pots were an option on early trains. Otherwise, iron bladder control was best. Inevitably, there was also the thorny question of female travellers. It won't surprise you that attitudes about women using railways were somewhat patronising. Quote, The reason why persons are late for the train generally arises from an overweening confidence in there being plenty of time. The interval between starting for the station and arriving at it is too finely calculated or too short a time is allowed the performance of certain things. We hope that we shall not be accused of a want of gallantry when we declare that when there are ladies in the case, it is absolutely necessary to allow for a wider margin for the preparations for departure than is ordinarily assigned. 
the fair sex must complete their toilet to their entire satisfaction, whatever the consequences may be. It should also be remembered that they do not enter into the spirit of the straight-laced punctuality observed by the railway authorities. And if the timetable sets down the departure at one twenty, they instinctively read one forty-five. In such cases, it is absolutely necessary to adopt some stratagem to ensure being in time for the train. The precise modus operandi is left to the ingenuity of the traveller and the opportunities that may present themselves. End quote. I know this is pretty sexist and patronising, but actually you need to remember a couple of things. First, that the concept of an absolute departure time was basically invented by the railways. Seriously, no Roman legion was ever told to march at 0832 hours, otherwise they would miss the transport ship departing from the port at 12.57 hours. Trains were different. This was especially hard for some aristocratic ladies to adapt to. They were used to people deferring to them in almost everything. Gentlemen would wait on them. Servants, of course, were bound by contracts of employment to do as they were told. And travel was based more around their choice rather than on a fixed deadline. Then there was the sheer complexity of women's clothing to take into account. A Victorian lady simply didn't get dressed in ten minutes. Even in a rush, it took a long time. So if you have people who are rich, who are used to taking time to perfect their appearance, and are also used to transport waiting for them, well, you can see that perhaps that etiquette manual had some truth to it, along with the generous dollop of sexism. Of course, for the third-class passengers, life was different. They were well used to bending over backwards for other people, and fine clothes were not an issue for them. Of course, for the ultimate train enthusiast, the lady upon whom everyone waited, well, the solution was obvious. Give orders to the directors of the railway company itself and get them to lay on special royal carriages on the train. Yes, Queen V loved railway travel. And my gosh, did she travel in style. Even today, on one of those luxury train holidays that I dream of, you'd struggle to match Queen Victoria's level of comfort. But, as you can guess, perhaps... We are at the point where one of the taglines in the description of the podcast since day one finally comes up. The one about time and space. The Victorian railways acquired something unprecedented, an accurate measure of time, and for that time to be the same everywhere. Standardised time had to be invented by the Victorians to manage the railways. That's what makes them such an enormous historical earthquake in their own right, not just a subset of the Industrial Revolution. When you look at your watch and count the minutes, whether in London or Liverpool, 
you are seeing the standardised time because of the Victorians. Throughout history, most time-telling was inaccurate and it didn't matter. Only specialists, like navigators and mathematicians, needed precise times. And even then, they didn't need standardised times. Just the accurate count from a fixed point of departure to calculate longitude. The Greenwich Mean Time website, perhaps the ultimate authority on time anywhere outside Gallifrey, says, quote, From 1792 in England, it became normal to use local mean time rather than apparent time from a sundial. Whilst travel and communications were slow, these local time differences were of little importance, and towns and cities in Britain used local time. By the 18th century, horse-drawn carriages were taking mail and passengers across Britain, and the guards on these coaches carried timepieces so that they could regulate the arrival and departure times. Because of the local time differences across Britain, these timepieces were adjusted to gain about 15 minutes every 24 hours when travelling west to east to compensate for the local time differences and, of course, adjusted to lose 15 minutes in 24 hours when returning. End quote. Now, that is fine when you are travelling by a horse on a barge or a ship. But a railway train is something very different. Imagine the hell of trying to work out a railway timetable that you have to adjust by 15 minutes over 24 hours, then adjust to reflect distance and hourly travel rates. The maths involved was mind-boggling. Oxford, for instance, is actually 5 minutes and 2 seconds behind GMT, and Leeds is 6 minutes 10 seconds. Imagine you live in London and want to travel to Oxford, then Leeds. Your departure time on the railway will be in London time. But what time do you arrive in Oxford? To get to Leeds, you will need to change at Birmingham. So you would need to make sure your Oxford departure time is in time to change at Birmingham. So you would need to know your departure time at Oxford, your arrival time at Oxford, then your converted arrival time at Birmingham, then your local departure time at Birmingham. And then you need to work it out for Leeds. Some connection times could be so tight you only had minutes to cross platforms or even towns. It wasn't just inconvenience for customers or missed connections that could be the result of confusing timetables. Quote, Dickens himself experienced an appalling accident in 1865, travelling from Folkestone to London, when approaching the viaduct at Staplehurst at a speed of 50 miles an hour on a downward gradient. The train jumped the rails because two had been temporarily removed by workers on the line, the foreman having consulted the wrong timetable. All the first-class carriages except one plunged down into the riverbed below. The one that was spared, hanging perilously over the bridge, happened to be the one occupied by Dickens. I never thought 
should be here again, he said, when he returned to his home in Gad's Hill Place. End quote. A simple human error, but made even more likely if time conversions had to be factored into maintenance schedules. For the Victorian railways and the clever men at Greenwich, this was unacceptable. So, in 1840, the Great Western Railway under Isambard Kingdom Brunel ordered all timetables for all of its stations in the UK to use London time, not local time. Towns with stations on GWR lines had to choose to either follow local time and be aware that the railway station timetable was on London time or to change the local time to match London. The arrival of the telegraph meant instant communication was available too. That further drove the need for standardisation of times. Imagine that you were in your gentleman's club in London and received a telegram from Miss Honoria in Carnforth saying, By eight o'clock tonight, you will either make me an offer or shall marry Cecil instead. If you get that at local time of 2.20.05, do you still have time to respond? You would need to know the time difference. Since Carnforth is actually 11 minutes behind London on its local time, you would indeed have time to reply to the telegram, or pretend you never saw it, and marry the much more enticing Miss Catherine, who has just suggested such an attachment. You can blame it on not getting the message in time. Or more realistically and less excitingly, it will be a telegram about shares, and you can have a lot of money on the sales deadline. Gradually, through the 1840s, most of the various railway companies adopted Greenwich Mean Time on their lines. But local times persisted outside stations, in some stubborn towns, and on lines that took longer to fall in. Some clockmakers even sold clocks with two sets of hands, one set for local time and one for the GMT of the local railway stations. True to form, nearly 40 years after the issue became apparent, Parliament finally stirred itself into action and passed the Statutes Definition of Time Act in 1880. This finally forced the last holdouts onto GMT. Although in practice, this had happened almost everywhere after relentless pressure from the post office, railways, and telegraph companies, a mere four years later, an international convention was held, which agreed that GMT would be the international standard for time. So, a big thank you to the Victorians for literally regulating time into the modern age. Now, we've finished our deep dive into railways. I think we've seen how far from being an obvious and easy enterprise rolled out carefully nationwide with government support, they were actually a crazy mix of ambition, invention, hard work, vision, determination, greed, corruption, suffering and immense cultural upheaval. It is a miracle 
that the Victorians managed to build them. But they did. Those great iron roads linking the country side of Great Britain to its cities and towns, then rolling out around the world. What a historical earthquake this was. I'd like to thank listeners for all their related railway emails and the posts on Facebook, especially those like Rob in Australia who have ancestors who worked on the railways. It's time now to move on. The next episode will be a standalone episode as we are racing towards the third anniversary special in May. And it is uh, something to cover now whilst we are suffering from the coronavirus before we move into the next series of great historical earthquakes. So episode 29 should be out on the 1st of May, entitled The Court of King Cholera, The Great Victorian Plague, followed by the anniversary special Victoria and Albert. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback, or just have a chat, or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page, or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat, or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care, and bye for now.